Hey guys, thanks so much for checking out another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, and I hope everyone's doing okay. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole is a little podcast where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and also my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some stories, interviews and great music for like-minded rock music fans. I will choose from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, as they are stupid, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some tickets, music or merch, or listen to an old favourite album and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I've missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I will never check this email address at gofuckyourself forward slash cockgoblin that's cock spelt with a K and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit Seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast, or via the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. I'd love to hear from you. The website also has Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode, past episodes, including the occasional bonus episode that I do, and some other golden magic. I also have small playlists of the great lesser-known artists that I highlight at the end of each episode on the Victims tab of the website. Please, please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again, and here goes. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to Ross Hetherington, Scott Hughes, Luke O'Connor, Dr. Phil Argy, and thanks for a super nice Apple review from someone called Jim Jiminy Jim Jim Sheru. Thanks, Jim. I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to drop me some nice words. And just quickly, I heard an artist called Tim Trainer. Tim has a pretty cool EP out, and I've popped one of his songs called Hourglass on the Golden Magic page of the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. So you can check out one of Tim's songs there. This episode is the second part of my rabbit hole dig on songs that I love with seven plus syllables in the title. Please check out episode 26 if you haven't heard that steaming pile of syllable heavy poop yet. So here's what we got up to last episode. Feed.
benefit of Mr. Kite. You boys, you got your fear, your mom and you got really no place to go. Let's jump straight in and start with episode 27, Seven Up Part Two. I really love the early period Rolling Stone stuff, and this 14 syllable titled tune is the first song that Keith Richards ever wrote on piano, and it was also the first recording that the Stones ever used a horn section on. The horns were arranged by Mike Leidner, who also did horns on She's Leaving Home from Sgt. Pepper's. The cover of the US single had the band dressed in women's clothes and they apparently hit a bar in New York City after the shoot, still dressed in drag. The Rolling Stones, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadow? just mentioned the album Sgt Peppers, so just a side rabbit hole on Sgt Peppers the album for Mark Everline. It took about 700 contact hours to complete and their first album Please Please Me took just 10 hours. The nine syllable title track was recorded as one song with the eight syllable with a little help from my friends. Some other interesting Sgt Pepper facts, it was the first album to have the lyrics printed on the album cover and it was also the first rock album to win a Grammy for album of the year. In 2007, there were seven active army or police officers in the UK with the real rank and name of Sergeant Pepper. Here's Paul McCartney talking about the album. I was coming back on a plane and um, I was with our roadie, Mal. He said, we passed the salt, passed the salt and pepper. And he said, salt and pepper. I said, what? He said, salt and pepper. And I thought he said, Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> that was it. I said, that's great. Wait a minute, hold that right there. So I had, that was the idea planted. And then because I'd been listening to all this sort of alternative music, I thought, wait, what about that for an idea? You know, we'll pretend we're another band when we make this album. And the idea was when you walk up to the microphone, John, you won't be John Lennon. You'll be a guy out of this group, so you can do anything you want. So that's why the uniforms are on the, you know, we went down to... The tailors in Soho, Bermans, we all got measured for all the suits and everything. We did it full, full tilt, you know, and uh, it kind of worked, you know. It allowed us to do 
crazier things than we might otherwise have done. But that was because I wasn't me. I was this guy in this other group. It's free. It was very freeing. Um, so when George brought up the uh, Within You, Without You, and nobody was there going, oh, George, we don't really want any Indian music on this album. We're a rock and roll group, you know. Right. It was like, it was like yeah, come on, let's see what happens, you know. Let's, so, you know, liberating was, was a good word for it. I can remember just the melody. It was like, like the halftime bit. Yeah. So it was kind of like. Dun, 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 dun. It was like an Irish jig. It was like an Irish jig. Yeah, that was the idea. Like a sea shanty, kind of like you know, all the boys gathered at the bar and. Yeah. We don't need no one to tell us. That was the idea initially, and I think we probably jammed it like that and went, well, by about two minutes in, it gets a little kind of boring. <laughs> so because of our background in, like, the sort of the country and, the, and the, the bluegrass and rockabilly thing, we probably just went, well, we need to kind of double time it. So how did you find yourself in terms of what the song's about? It was like a rebellious 50s rock and roll song, but an updated kind of punk rock version. That was Chris from The Living End talking about a song from their 1997 EP, which spent 69 weeks in the Australian Top 100. The EP was the best-selling single of the 90s in Australia with some sneaky counting in the intro that I could have put in episode three, as well as a strong one, two, three in the bridge, a seven-syllabled prisoner of society.
a man there you know he's the host of the show and you'll find that he fucking hates choirs Let's move on. Ugh. I'm going to pretend I never saw or heard that one because it was done in Melbourne again and also featured living end main man Chris Cheney on guitar. All right, maybe a choir is like a fart joke. Funny if you were contributing to the sound, but it shouldn't be recorded and played for others. Not sure, I'm just trying to stay positive. Anyway, I'll move on now with some positive choir use. Well, we wrote the song I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which... Um, is a gospel song, pretty much. I mean, we, it doesn't sound much like a gospel song the way we do it, but if you look at the lyric and the basic music, that's exactly what it is. And we, we got a cassette from a friend of ours in Island Records of uh, a gospel choir covering the song, and it sounded like, it sounded totally different, but it sounded really exciting and new. So we traveled down to Harlem, and, visited this church in the middle of Harlem where this choir were uh, going through a rehearsal. And uh, we played with them and got the idea to do a kind of combination arrangement.
another long titled song with the word still in the title that happens to have seven syllables and was a number one single in America and it was Billy Joel's first number one single. Billy Joel actually had two other number one singles in America, 1983's Tell Her About It and 1989's Seven Syllable We Didn't Start the Fire. Billy Joel's 1980 album Glass Houses won him a Grammy, was number one in the US for six weeks, selling over seven million copies there. Billy Joel, it's still rock and roll to me. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back to the age of jive. Where have you been hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress as trashy till you spend a lot of money. Everybody's talking about the new sound. Funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. What's the matter with the car I'm driving? Can't you tell that it's out of style? Another rock and roll titled song is from the killers of their first record, Hot Fuss. The eight-syllabled, glamorous indie rock and roll. famous set by Queen at Live Aid was Bohemian Rhapsody, Radio Gaga, then Freddie's sing-along, which had a note that they called the note heard around the world. It's technically two notes, but we won't get hung on that. (laughs) Then Hammer to Fall, crazy little thing called Love, We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions. That set went from 6.41pm to 7.02pm. But Freddie and Brian came back on stage at 9.48pm as part of one of the encores and did the perfectly apt and eight-syllable titled Is This The World We Created? And here's the Live Aid performance. So 
searching for what they need. Is this the world we created? What did we do before? Is this the world we made? Against the law, so it seems. Just circling back on you 2 and while we're talking about Live Aid, here's Bono talking about why they miss playing Pride in the Name of Love at Live Aid, which was their huge hit at the time. That comfortable distance we've always tried to attack as a band and between a, uh, an audience and, and, and the stage, we try to smash that. We do it with technology now, but back then we just did it physically. We went into the audience and with Live Aid, yeah. We were lo I'm always looking, as all performers are, for a symbolic moment, something that represents the day. And I found this girl who, um, uh, who was getting crushed, and I just went into her and grabbed her and sort of danced with her. Now, strange thing, I haven't told you this, she was there last night. No. So 30 years later. Yeah. Really? I'm yeah, sure. yeah. So just looking for that moment. But I, because we, we missed playing Pride, which is our big song, Ah. And band were not very happy. Right. I wasn't very happy. And I remember being very, very de depressed about it. And I took a drive in the country and we got back to Dublin. Um, and I met this sculptor. Um, and just in Wexford, a little town in Ireland. And he was working on a piece. And it was a guy jumping. And he said, it's called The Leap. And he said, it's you. <laughs> And, and it was one of those beautiful moments. He said that was the most inspiring. He said you were trying to leap across. You wanted to make the connection. Making that leap is, you know, it's a step of faith. It's, you know, it's, you, you, you jump from knowing into unknowing. You don't know where you're going to go to, which is a metaphor, I suppose, for any kind of music, really, for composing music. Mm -hmm. When you improvise the way we songwrite, a lot of the time is, we're, we improvise, we don't know where we're going. And that's, that's how we've made some of our best music. And another quick U2 story about how they tricked the TV executive. So, you know, I've 
told this before, I used to haunt Skateboard and I used to go up in the bus and I'd wait for him outside his house and <laughs> stupid, stupid stuff like that. But, but when we, we, we heard somebody, it, 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 somebody uh, sort of high profile director type was in the neighborhood and had heard that we wrote our own songs and we're like 17 or 18 and he was coming around to listen to those songs and we had been fighting with each other all day on the start what, how to start the song how to end the song what was the middle of the song the usual this is sort of Mount Temple yeah it? this is okay, Mount Temple back, right, okay. really yeah. so there's yeah. a knock on the door and we're like wow what are we going to do what are we going to do I don't know what we're going to do open the door open the door he comes in oh, I've heard you hear you uh, you write your own songs you, 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 would you play one for me I'm, I might be able to get you on the television yeah yeah and so we're like, yeah, this is one of ours called Glad to See You Go. And we played a Ramones song. <laughs> and he goes, that's very good. That's good. Did you write that? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And then we came on his television show here called Young Line, I think it was. Yeah. And we played one of our own songs and nobody noticed. But So it's, it's not just self-belief. Yeah. There's, there's a bit of... Uh, Chancing the your own yeah. um, Would you like to hear the boys playing a song? For you? I mean, as you mentioned, the Ramones. Let's, let's take it. Well, this is it. Let's take it. Thank you. This. And I got, I got to say that to. I got to say, tell this to Joey Ramone. Did you? Yeah, yeah, I told him, and he was like, wow. Was he up for that? That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> he really laughed. So while we're on the Ramones, let's pop in another Joey Ramone pen song, as we had I Want to Be Sedated in last week's episode. And here's drummer Marky Ramone talking about what he thinks the song was about. He was in an institution for a while. Joey? Yeah, he was in an institution. Was it for his OCD? Uh, I, I don't know what it was. It was, it was a mental thing. Okay. So he knew a black girl who, who was next to him, you know, and they got along very well. Yeah. They liked each other a lot. So uh, a few days later, she was gone. And it, f it flipped him out, it freaked him out, because he, he, was, he became really close and good friends with her. So he cleverly, humor, I mean, nothing's funny about the KKK, but he used that in, the, in that song. Johnny Ramone said that the guitar intro was pinched from Cheap Tricks, Here's a Hall. Ten syllabled. The KKK took my baby away. She went away for the holidays. Said she's going to LA. But she never got that. She never got that. She never got that. They say, yeah. She went away for the holidays. Said she's going to LA. But she never got Just saying. 
I've mentioned it in previous episodes that I love John Mayer's Born and Raised record, and my favourite song on that record is the 17-syllable make-believe story song of Walt Grace's Submarine Test, January 1967. Finn talking about why Split Ends moved from New Zealand to Australia in the 1970s. We came across to Australia to use it, I suppose, as a stepping stone to England. In fact, we told journalists when we first came over here that that was our intention. But during that first year, we found a lot here that we hadn't really suspected would be here. And the whole Australian rock scene was obviously coming alive and bursting with enthusiasm. And this affected us. We, we thought a lot more of the place by the time we did leave to go to England. And after a couple of years in England, we decided to come back here and live for that very reason, because it was a, a much easier place to live and uh, a lot more enthusiasm here on a basic level for rock music. A lot more optimism generally. I think we, we've now progressed a lot in the studio. I think a lot of Australian bands have actually, and New Zealand bands recently. The sounds coming out of here are a lot more, uh, a lot more professional, I suppose, is the word. Yeah, I think there's always been good songwriters in Australia and New Zealand. There's always been good musicians, very good musicians, probably the, at least as good if not better than musicians anywhere. But the, there are two things that used to hold us back were um, lack of good managers and lack of good record producers. And I think now there's a lot more good managers coming through because it's never enough to have just good songs. So the whole thing's come of age, really, if you like. And, uh, you know, there's, there's New Zealanders, there's Australians, but really it's the Australasian invasion.
In last week's episode, we chatted about a few Beatles songs that the BBC had banned. And this split end song was also banned or discouraged from airplay due to the Falklands War. But the song was actually a metaphor for Tim Finn's nervous breakdown that he had just suffered. The song went to number two in Australia in 1982, number seven in New Zealand, number 83 in the UK, and did fuck all elsewhere. But it is a super original, great tune. Tim Finn played this song at Sir Peter Blake's funeral, who was a sailor who at one time held the world record for sailing around the world and was the two times America's cup captain. All very boring, I know, but he was shot and killed by pirates in 2001, which sounds very 1743 to me. The seven-syllable nugget, six months in a leaky boat by Split Ends. Episode 24's In and Out songs, we covered Radiohead's seven-syllable, Everything in Its Right Place. And as we're talking about Neil Finn, he also has a seven-syllabled Everything song with his band Crowded House. The song made it to number 10 in Australia in 1996 and features Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Everything is good for you. See a man with a flag and he leads the procession. Speaking of Eddie Vedder. One of my favorite songs he ever wrote was The Elderly Woman, you know, the one with the very uh, oddly long title. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that song is so beautiful, and you're writing it really from a woman's point of view, I think, if I have it right. Yeah. Like like that guitar there, I mean, would it be odd of me to ask you to, 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 to show me how you come up with that? Well, it was really just, I think it was more of an exercise in the morning. We were recording. We were all staying in this one little... 
compound in, uh, called The Site outside of Marin trying to make this second record. And I set up this um, 1960s uh, Sure Vocal Master, which was a PA like the Beatles played through when uh, they play Shea Stadium, you see, of those little speaker columns. Slept between the two speakers. And then that morning had a thing that I was playing through the speakers. And I think Stone was sitting on the porch having coffee and asked, what was that thing that you were playing? And I said, oh, it was just a little thing. What and was that said, thing? What was the thing you were playing? It was, yeah, uh, I seem to recognize your face. So it's just basic, you know. What are you, what are you playing, D to C to G? Something yeah, like that? D, yeah. D, D, C, and D, just one finger. And then the I, by not changing at all, small town predicts my fate. Perhaps that's what no one wants to see. Oh, I just want to scream. Hello, my God, it's been too long. Never dreamed you'd return. But now, here you are. Yeah, so she recognizes him, but he don't recognize her. <laughs> she come, She's working in a department store. Yeah, behind the counter, more like a yeah, a little deli, small town. Yeah. Where the fuck did that come from? Who you? I mean, where, where the fuck does that come from? It's just a story in your head, or is it based on someone? Yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I, I think it just sat on my shoulder for a second. You can, you can dream songs and then wake up and play them in the morning. Another great story song is a seven-syllable from Little Things, Big Things Grow by Paul Kelly from his majestic album called Comedy, which also had the eight-syllable song we heard in episode 24's Animal Titles, I Won't Be a Dog Anymore, from Little Things, Big Things Grow by Paul Kelly. Gather round people, I'll tell you a story, an eight-year-long story of power and pride. British Lord Vesti and Vincent Lignari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesti was fat with money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean and spoke very little. He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. The Ringy were working for nothing but rations. But once they had gathered the wealth of the land, 
Daily depression got tighter and tighter. The rings are decided, they must make a stand. They picked up their swags and started off walking at Water Creek. They sat themselves down, now it don't sound like much. But it sure got tongues talking back at the homestead and then in the town. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. I've had a few weeks to recover from my huge Delamitri Justin Curry episode. And a song I didn't mention in that episode, and it's off my favourite Delamitri album, and I think I mentioned four songs from the album Change Everything, and this is the eight-syllabled Sometimes I Just Have to Say Your Name. With a sweet drip of every raindrop Time brings you closer to me And with each new sign at every train stop Another hour without you is consigned to history. Staring at some photo like a fool But as day turns to night There's this hopelessness to fight Syllable attempt at a metal song from Coldplay. And we played a concert and um, it was freezing. And I went to the tour bus, and uh, I guess because we, I was thinking about like metal and everything, and, and this is about as close to metal as we ever came. Although, respect to Ramstein, all Ramstein, all day long. <laughs> Say I wasted all 
may have mentioned somewhere that I accidentally saw Coldplay on the Rush of Blood to the Head tour and they blew me away. My favourite song off that record is The Scientist, but I also love the title track, which also qualifies for this episode, having seven syllables in the title. Chris Martin said this of the song. And I quote. It's a homage to Johnny Cash, the greatest. Cash, Dylan and Hank Williams are the greatest men with guitars. I really wanted to sing this song in a low key. The album has sold 15 million copies and had four hit singles, Clocks, In My Place, The Scientist, and also the eight syllable, God Put A Smile Upon Your Face. The album won three Grammys and was ranked 324 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. A Rush of Blood to the Head by Coldplay. He said, I'm gonna buy this place and burn it down. I'm gonna put it six feet underground. He said, I'm gonna buy this place and watch it fall. Stand here beside me, baby, in the crumbling walls. Oh, I'm gonna buy this place and start a fire. Stand here until I feel all your heart's desires. Because I'm gonna buy this place and see it burn. Do back the things it did to you in return Next up we have two great long monikered nuggets which both mention art in the title. And the first one we heard way back in episode six's F-bombs, The Gentle Art of Making Enemies by Faith No More. So familiar, all 
mistakes it doesn't have to be like this if you don't make a friend now one might make you so learn the gentle art of making enemies Just a quick note about the album that this song is from, the nine-syllabled King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. Keyboard player Roddy Bottom was absent from most of the recording process as his father had just died and also Kurt Cobain had passed away as Kurt and Courtney were both close personal friends of his. One of my favourite Queens of the Stone Age tunes also has art in the nine-syllable title, The Lost Art of Keeping a Secret. Queens of Stone Age. Zeppelin 4 was, well, they, you know, following the, the Zeppelin 3 where Jimmy and I spent quite a lot of time up in Snowdonia looking for the, what, um, Dan from the Black Keys, or all these people say, it's the, it's the difficult third album, but it's not, it's the difficult every album. Um, so the Mumford struggle with the third one, then the fourth one, and, and so we were very, very fortunate in, in the Zeppelin camp because there was a lot of... Uh, amazing variety of stylistic influence in everybody's play. So uh, Battle of Evermore, as just as an instrumental piece, was beautiful, you know. Um, and it was also the way it, the way it sounded. It was it had some kind of essence of heralding, of drawing people together, of of. Um, summoning a mindset if you like and that sounds insane so but the battle of evermore is a sort of almost a sort of uh an adventure in some dark place once upon a time where the people are called together uh, there's a sort of 
some kind of fanfare. So you have two parts of the story. You have the fact of the the impending sort of travesty on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have this call to unity. And as a song, I mean, I suppose really. It's a great moment, but I'd started to write it so that you had a, a section A that, that told the story of the, the would-be disaster, and then I had a section B, which was the triumph and the rallying, and I tried to sing them both. And um, the uh, it was very, very insane idea. Obviously, I could drop all the section A vocals in, and then I could do... Uh, another pass and put the answers or the compliments or the um but it's first of all it didn't sound right in one voice in one pitch and uh and second of all it might be a little interesting to consider that that at least jimmy and i were running side by side with the incredible string band and with uh, Roy Harper and with the Straubs and with Fairport Convention, who were really something else back then. So in the way Battle of Evermore is a little bit like something from Legion Leaf, you know, from the Fairport thing about uh, Lord Donald's been up to no good and the gardeners come through the window and except for I, I... spending all my time really in the Welsh, in the Cambrian mountains, I always felt a sort of, there was unfinished business there. And there was still a rub going on between two different tribes of people, you know. So I felt that and I felt lyrically, I had to write something that would, you know, get it, get it out. Um, Very lucky really, because you can 48 years later or whatever it is, go, well, yeah, that was uh, Louis Lewy part two or whatever it was. But it, sometimes it re- I, re- I think we really hit something, a vein of something really very, very special. And um, and that was one of those songs where the story, the fable, the, the night before some impending doom was almost averted by the spirit of the people. The Queen of Light took her bow and then she turned to go. Scott Whelan from the Stone Temple Pilots. This next song, uh, we actually never, this is really the first time we've ever performed this song live. Uh, It's off of our second album, Purple, and uh, it's also about a uh, 
painful and sort of heartbreaking experience that I um, went through uh, years ago um, <clears throat> in, uh, in an old relationship where uh, uh, my old partner and I went through a, uh, a, um, an abortion situation. And, uh, you know, it was a difficult choice to, for both of us at the time, and it was a decision that we made, and uh, it was not an easy one. Um, but thank God, you know, uh, we were able to have that choice. Uh, so this song is called uh, Kitchenware and Candy Bars. I haven't done this in the podcast before, but for the very last song here, I'm going to do three songs, which are the same songs, all different versions, and I love all three of them. The original was released in 1966 by Simon and Garfunkel and made it to number 13 in the US, and then it was released again in 1987 as a pop song by The Bangles and made it to number two in the US, and then it was released again by Body Jar in 1999 and did fuck all on the charts. <laughs> but it's a great man rock version. And here's all three of them in reverse order. The seven-syllabled, A Hazy Shade of Winter. Watch 
So that's the last seven syllable plus song before I get to my favorite, but I want to add at the end of every episode when I can an interesting or funny story about one of the songs or artists, and this week's story is about Paul Kelly's From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Paul, Paul comes to the Indigenous Australian experience, I suppose, or situation from a point of friendship. His, his friendships with musicians and people um, bring him into the Indigenous world and he has a natural affiliation through those personal relationships. Paul and I had interaction at gigs and stuff and talks and stuff. And then one Christmas time, he, he said, look, I'd just like to come up with you, Mob, and we'll, you know, would it be possible for us to go camping somewhere? And we brought his young son, Declan, up. So Wyvernhoe Dam had just opened up as a, as a camping area, so we whacked the tents up and got the fire going, cooked a feed, and, um, yeah, that's when we sort of really started, like, collaborating together around a campfire. I went camping with Kev Carmody and he told me the story of the Wayfield Station strike, which was a strike that started in 1966, which is an Aboriginal stockman walked off Lord Vesty's cattle station in a dispute over wages and conditions, which uh, quickly turned into a, a land rights claim. One of the first. Well, they were on strike for eight years. The Whitlam government returned most of their lands back in 1974. I had this sort of, well, basic core progression in my head for years, and it was so mundane and and banal, like almost boring, but there was something to it. I said, you know, it'd be a good one to tell a story on. We got talking about different subjects, you know, and um, sort of lobbed on this Gurindji one because, and I told him what a huge impact that had on us as Aboriginal drovers and stockmen, and um, told him the bits that I knew from, because see, a lot of the drovers and the stockmen They'd moved from the West Australian Kimberleys, bring cattle across the Northern Territory, down the Bullia Track, and we'd pick them up out west and bring them in. So there was this sort of huge, how would you say, um, stockman drove a grapevine, and we, we, we knew, knew what was going on on the ground, not what was coming out in the media. And uh, Paul got so interested in it, it sort of came together and, oh, wouldn't be two hours. We were polishing it in two hours. But we had to check the facts, because I had the baseline, what I'd heard from the grapevine, and then we had the official version that you know, came through the media. So we went and had a yarn to Frank Hardy, and I had a yarn to old Professor Hollis about it, and um, that's how it sort of came about. And, and, and it wasn't the first strike, you see. Well, there were strikes way back in the 30s. You know, strike, strikes in the Kimberleys in the, in the 40s. Uh, Palm Island strike, 59 up here, just up the, the road here, uh, sort of thing. But it was the, the first strike that sort of the, made the Australian pop, populace aware that there were Aboriginal people here prior to, um, you know, to, to European mob. And they did achieve something because 
we got the old Gough Whitlam there. He, he putting that land back in that old man's hand. To one day, a tall stranger appeared in the land, and he came with lawyers, and he came with great ceremony, and through Vincent's fingers, poured a handful of sand. These Aboriginal stockmen are on strike. They walked off the job over a month ago. Their wives, children and relatives went with them. This is the Wave Hill mob. Wave Hill is the territory's biggest cattle station, 5,186 square miles. In fact, the biggest in the world. I think that Australians all over Australia have got to decide whether they think it's right that Macquarie Street, for example, should be owned by the Aboriginals. It uh, goes right. The Aborigines aren't claiming Macquarie Street. No, but because uh, there aren't any Aboriginals here, are there? He said, hey, you steal another man's country. <laughs> and I said, no, well, what was before the bestie born and I born? That was a black country. So before I get to my favourite, let's quickly take a break and recap the magic for a second time. My favourite seven-plus-syllable titled song is an eight-syllable nugget, and again, I love two versions. The latest version reintroduced me to an old Aussie pen song written by John Farrar and was a number three single in the US, a number two single in Australia and the UK, and a number one single in Canada. Here's the version I heard a couple of years ago that reminded me of what a cleverly written song this is. Um, we, Scott and I just threw this one together on a whim. Um, this was, I've always thought this was a great song and I've never heard it covered before, especially by a rock and roll band. So we figured we'd just try something different. Check it out.
Obviously, hopelessly devoted to you, done by the rival sons. Halfway through shooting the movie Grease, the producers still hadn't decided on a contractual entitled vocal solo song for Olivia Newton-John. The song was actually recorded and the film part shot after filming it wrapped on Grease. Hopelessly Devoted to You was one of the four top 10 singles from the soundtrack, which sold 38 million copies. And it's still the 10th biggest selling album ever. And has a great bass moose into the second verse. know with great magic comes great fuckery.
part, let's move on. So thanks again for listening and please rate and review and share the podcast. The ratings only take a few seconds and are super helpful as they help the podcast chart. We actually hit number 230 in the US this week in music podcasts. I didn't know there was 230 music related podcasts, but it's still nice to see. Thanks as always to Patty Cummings for web and tech help and Rob Dean at Mr. Miyagi Studios. And as always, if you want to tell me something I missed or could do better or got wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together, please send me a spell checked, correctly laid out and grammatically accurate critique to know at uh-uh.com and I won't get back to you as soon as I can. But you can say hi on Instagram and Facebook, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast. Or you can visit the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com for all the past episodes and Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode. To end the podcast, when I can, I want to add a song I love from a lesser-known artist that fits the week's topic. And this week features a seven-syllable titled song from a great Melbourne singer and songwriter, Ryan Oliver. I know Ryan will probably check out this episode. I'm just going to give him a quick weather and history lesson. Okay, on the 31st of August, 1849, a snowstorm dropped about an inch of snow on Melbourne city streets. On the 26th of July, 1882, snow fell for about 30 minutes in Melbourne. In 1951, there was some small snowfall for about 20 minutes in Melbourne's central business district. And on the 4th of April, 2020, there was some snowfall in the northwestern suburbs like Sunbury, and some snow hit the roofs of the 50-storey plus buildings in the city. So with a beautiful song that my research shows is clearly about the 31st of August, 1849, or Ryan Oliver is full of shit. Melbourne is covered in snow by Ryan Oliver. Check out the Victims tab on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, for a playlist of some of Ryan's great tunes. Thanks again, guys. See ya. Oh
Slow. 